Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And as has been mentioned by both Sam and Isaac this morning, we are beginning a series I'm very, very excited about. And we have been gearing up for this series uh, since last summer when we started a series on faith. Everything we've been doing is setting us up to talk about one of the most powerful books in the entire Bible for today. Now, all of them have relevance, but this book speaks from generations past, and it will speak to generations until Jesus returns, the book of Romans. And what we're going to be focusing on is what we've been studying all fall long, the faithfulness of God. And uh, I don't want this to sound self-promoting. You can find better preachers, you know that. Uh, You can hear better sermons, and you can find better churches. And so this isn't promoting a church brand, or me, or Michael, or whoever's teaching on stage. What I'm really trying to do is get us to understand the significance of the book of Romans if we open ourselves up to it. So I'd like to give you three levels of participation I want to encourage you as your pastor to participate in. The very first one sounds self-serving, and I'm uncomfortable with it, but I, I need to say it. Be here. Be here on Sundays. And if you can't be here on Sundays because of work or travel or sickness, then make a commitment to go online, either download or watch online the messages. Romans is not a series you can pop in and pop out of. It's, it's tightly drawn and strung together. And you need to have all the pieces. And we're going to cover all 16 chapters over these next few months. It's that significant that I'm going to ask you, would you make a commitment to being here? And if you can't be here, to pay attention to what's being taught. Because you can spend a half hour on worse things, right? So what we're asking you to do is to focus level one on this series and what we're studying. Level two. Begin to study Romans for yourself. Read along with what we're reading. Don't come in and take my word for it. Open up your Bibles and begin to read Romans these next few months together. We have provided for you in the Resource Center, which is through the cafe, uh, uh, two options for commentaries on the book of Romans. These are very practical commentaries. We're going to sell them to you at less than our cost. And so we want to make them available to you. I highly recommend both Michael and I uh, have used these, and we think they're very, very practical. And you can pick those up today. Uh, if there aren't enough, uh, when you go there, there'll be some more next week. But we encourage you. They're written by N.T. Wright. If you want to know about them, ask us at the Information Center. You can order them on Amazon for yourself and have them delivered by week's end. But that's level two. Begin to study Romans for yourself and not just listen to what you're being taught. But focus and see what God's going to do in your life. And the third thing... Beginning next Wednesday, not this coming Wednesday, but a week from this Wednesday, Michael is going to teach a class on Wednesday nights through the book of Romans. Michael teaches at Ozark Christian College, so you're going to get a really intense understanding of Romans that coincides with what we can do in 30-minute time slots here on a Sunday morning. If you can't make Wednesday nights, and those will be online, if you can't make Wednesday nights, Mike Smith, a member of our church, is going to be teaching uh, starting on the 17th. Two weeks from today, he's going to be starting a Sunday school class during this hour that you can go along with the series as well and catch up. So those are the three levels. Be here. Level two, study and read it yourself. And level three, come and take the deeper classes that we're teaching so we can understand this. Uh, Michael's not on stage, but I know he's in the room, and uh, I know he agrees with me on this. This is one of the most pertinent passages of Scripture you can study. And we want to make that important, and we want to focus on that. 
So let me tell you what Romans is about. Now, I'm just going to give you a brief overview. Uh, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if I should or not. Uh, last hour, my, my iPad went blank. So it was, uh, I don't know what I said. So I'm going to get it right this time because my notes are in front of me. But last hour, I told two or three jokes. We did shadow puppets. It was amazing. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so now I have my notes in front of me. And I, I was like, yeah, I should have said that too. Okay, so first thing. Romans is a message of clarifying hope. This is what it's about. I want you to remember this. It's about the righteousness of God, which clarifies our hope. And the letter of Paul historically has made a difference. Let me explain. In the year 386, a 32-year-old man by the name of Augustine of Hippo wondered if, because of his life was in chaos, he wondered if the love of God could reach him. And then he read the book of Romans. And he realized that the love of God could. And it changed the path of his life. In 1516, Martin Luther struggled with an angry God. And he understood the righteousness of God to be the judgment of God. But when he read Romans, he understood it not only was the judgment of God, but the righteousness was also the mercy of God. And it changed Martin Luther's position on Scripture and his hope in faith. In 1738, John Wesley was in a group called the Holy Club, and they had made a commitment to do good deeds to gather God's attention. But after studying the book of Romans, he turned from self-confidence to Christ's confidence. And on a far lesser degree, in 1990, a mentor of mine told me I was going to take a, a graduate course, even though I would just finished and just started a master's program. He said, you're going to go to Great Lakes. They're going to teach a course down there called the Doctrine of Grace from Cincinnati Christian University. And a professor named Dr. Jack Cottrell came in and he taught the book of Romans. And I had my eyes open, and I'm not, this isn't hyperbole. I had my eyes open for the very first time. I had lived my entire Christianity trying to do my best. And then I finally realized after that course that I needed to trust Jesus best. So I've got a good word for you today. If when you look at your Christianity, you know you're not measuring up, the book of Romans will free you. It will free you in grace, and it will free you in power. So understanding this text, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't know outside of the Gospels themselves, there's more instrumental teaching in the church. And this church is committed to it. We've talked as a leadership. We're going to teach this book regularly. It's going to be in the normal three-year cycle of what we teach here because it's that important in a world that says, do your best. We need to understand what God's best is first. And then it allows our best to have any relevance whatsoever. Romans is a unique writing among Paul's work. It's not a response to a problem, which some of his letters are. It's not a reply to a personal attack, which some of his letters were. And it's not an exhortation to a failing church. It's a letter, it's a presentation of the gospel, what the gospel means. And at the end of the day, I may be projecting too much, but I'm going to suggest to you, I think if you ever heard Paul preach, it sounded like the book of Romans. This was his sermon. They used to joke that when the revivals were taking place, that every preacher had three good sermons and a fast car out of town. I think Paul's message was this, the book of Romans. It was his grand statement of what God had done in his life. So what I have to do now is briefly introduce the first 17 or 18 chapters, and I want it to encourage us, so let me do that. First, the lordship of Jesus, understanding the gospel of Jesus, it creates purpose. And Paul is our example. It's found in the first six verses. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also were among those who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul does something in verse 1 that's significant. He identifies himself. He says he's a servant. But he was an apostle. He was a powerful man. He was a church planner. He was a great preacher. He was a great scholar. But he says, no, no, none of those things. I need you to know who I am. I'm a servant called and set apart. We understand what set apart means. It's the concept of holiness. We talk about it often around here. Holiness is being set apart. But I found a better example. How many of you have a cabinet in your house full of dishes you never get to use? Husbands, come on, tell the truth. You know the special dishes, but since you never eat at home, you don't get them out? That's what it means to be set apart. The china, my mom's china that was, came out on special occasions, was set apart not to be used for everyday usage because she had four boys and we'd have broke them. What it means to be called and set apart is not isolated, never used, but it means held off for a very special purpose. And Paul said, God gave me a calling in my life. He called me and set me apart, no longer to live for myself, but to live for others. That's why in verse 5 he says, to call people to the obedience that comes from faith. So the challenge to us as we begin, does the purpose of your life call you to obedience? If it doesn't, Change your purpose. If you can hear the gospel presented about Jesus Christ and you feel compelled at no level to obey him, to trust him, and to live out the life and the ways of the life that he's called you to, if you're not moved by that, then you have not understood the gospel. Paul says when the gospel gets you, it changes your purpose. I read sometime somewhere where it said nobody can preach sobriety like a recovering addict. And I thought about that, and that's not suggesting that you should go and try every sin so that you're an expert. What it actually means is a person who's been enslaved can speak about sobriety in a different way than those who have never been drunk or high or addicted. And nobody can speak about grace except a person who's understood what a jacked up existence they've made for themselves. Amen? So, church... Our purpose is to speak of a sobriety in Christ that no high can overcome. So there's purpose. Secondly, faith in Jesus brings us into a new community. And this is going to sound self-promotional again, so I'm going to warn you in advance. I don't intend it to be, but I need to say what I need to say. Look at verses 7 and 8. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. You have to know that the epicenter of power when Paul wrote this letter, the epicenter of power was Rome. The government, the military, the power, the relationships throughout the world, it was all centered there. But Paul says, hey, I want you to know that when the light of the gospel explodes, even in the darkness of all power, it's seen. I want to give you hope today. You may wonder what a church in nowhere, Missouri, can do 
throughout the world. And I'm here to tell you, you are making a difference if you're showing the light of Christ. It is being seen by others because they're looking for hope. Then verses 11 and 12. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. The first step I told you, if you want this series to impact your life, is you're going to have to participate. And that doesn't mean just show up. It means show up attentive and open and be here and make it a priority and bring a Bible and open the Bible and then open it on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and pray and speak and seek. But I want to ask you to do something even more significant, which is found in Romans chapter 1. Be here for the person next to you. Quick glance at them without them noticing. The person on your right and left, the person in front and behind you, Do you know that when you show up here, you're not a number, but you're actually a person? The reason we have you introduce yourself to people around you is to break down the barriers of who is this person and what if I sing and what if I don't sing well and get rid of all that nonsense. But do you know when you show up here and you smile at somebody in the hallway or you help them or you encourage them or you see a young person walk through the hallway and you stop a little girl and tell her her dress is pretty or you like that boy's cowboy boots or whatever the heck you do? Do you understand how much that's giving and offering and and lifting up? Paul says, to the church of Rome, I feel like I'm part of you and I want to be with you because I want to give you what I have in my heart and I want to receive what you have. Church is not listening to a sermon. Church is when the body of believers in a community gather together in like mind to celebrate the goodness of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the believers. So come for the person next to you and offer them what God's given you and watch your heart be filled with purpose and community unlike anything most of us have ever experienced. And then we get to the beautiful heartbeat of Romans chapter one. Faith in Jesus brings all of us into a powerful obligation. That word powerful can be made purposeful, present. There's so many words I could use to fill in there. But it brings us into an obligation. And we don't like the word obligation. So you show up on the first Sunday of this new year and and all the obligations of the past year are over and you move on to the hope of a new year and you come into church and the last thing you want to hear is you have an obligation. So let me clarify, you have an obligation. If the love of Jesus Christ matters to you at all, you are indebted by love. Not by threat, not by punishment, but by hope. Verse 14. Paul says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, and that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul says, I'm under obligation. When you hear the good news about the cure for misery, when you know the good news about the cure for brokenness, when you know the cure for the disease that takes the joy of people and offers them only punishment and suffering, and you know what the cure is, you are obligated as a human being to offer them the cure. Amen? Remember when you were a child and your heart was more pure? Was that insulting? Remember when you were a kid and someone needed help and you never thought, well, who's going to help them? You just openly and honestly said what? 
I'll help. And when the love of Christ is known, and Paul's whole life was altered, he went from being an enemy to an ally. He, he went from someone who disbelieved to someone who knew Jesus. And he says, I have an obligation that I know what the cure to the misery of this world is, and I know what the cure to the brokenness of this world is, and I know what the cure to the despondency of this world is. It's Jesus. And he said, I have an obligation. So I have to ask you, and I know this is awkward, and I, hate, I don't do this very often, and when I do it, I sometimes repent. But I have to ask you, if you looked at your calendar, and you looked at your checkbook, and you looked at your entertainment, what's your obligation really? Because those three things will expose it. What is the obligation of the life you're living? Is it to offer mercy and help to those that are broken? Or is it to be satisfied, happy, and entertained? Because here's the good news of the gospel. God can change us, church. It doesn't matter what you were yesterday. God's more concerned about your today and your tomorrow than he ever is about your yesterday. We are obligated through love to offer what people need. And then Paul makes the statement of the book. Now, Michael and I are going to disagree, and I get to preach more of these sermons than he does, so I get the last word. But I think one of the most important sentences in this entire book is found right here. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Ashamed. It's an interesting word Paul chooses. What makes a person feel shamed? When you do something you don't want people to know you did. When you're not what people think you are because you've taught them to think you're that. Have you ever experienced shame? When I was younger, and I have this in my notes of sermons back when I was in my 20s and I knew everything, I, said it, I used to say things like, if I could take back 10 individual one-minute increments of my life, if I could have those 10 one-minute increments where I made a choice or said something or didn't say something or did something or didn't do something, if I could take those 10 minutes back, I could make a better life for myself. I'm 50 now. If I could have 90 minutes individually back from my life, church, are you with me? I have much to be shamed about. And the older I get, the more it sinks into me. And I know as believers, I'm not to live in shame. But because of the grace of Christ, I can look back on the life I chose to live, and I can value even more his grace. And I can offer even more forgiveness. And I can be even more merciful because I realize how much mercy God's given me. I awaken every day wondering why God has not flicked me off his globe. Are you with me? Because the things I've said to people to make myself feel better the things I didn't say to people that I should have to make them feel better, the things I did in the privacy, hoping no one found out, and then when they found out to lie about it, I am a broken man. And by the mercy, only by the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, do I have even the right to say the word God. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Paul had reason to be shamed. Paul killed people. He killed people who believed in Jesus. Do you imagine how shocked they're going to be in heaven when he walks in? I don't know if you think about these things. I spent all day thinking about these things. They're going to say, well, how'd you get here? Well, this dude killed me. There he is. I mean, think about it. Shame. Paul killed people. He lied in court under oath. He went about destroying what God was doing. And yet God blinded him to himself and gave him sight to a future. And Paul could stand up and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power. 
Believing in and preaching in Jesus will not make you look good in the eyes of the world. So I ask you, what's your obligation? To protect your image or to promote the truth and the true image of God in Jesus Christ? Because if we are ashamed of the gospel, Christianity will be a social thing. It's a thing we do once a week for an hour, punch the clock, we walk out of here, we feel better about ourselves, the community thinks you're noble, and so they send you off saying, well, that's a good person. Paul says, no, I'm unashamed of the gospel. I'm ashamed of the life I lived as a sinner, but I'm not ashamed of the fact that I needed Jesus Christ and he came for me. So I'm going to ask you this morning, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of Jesus and what he had to do for you? Because you'll only be ashamed when admitting you're a sinner ruins your image and hurts your heart. I think one of the freeing things we can do in the world today is admit it. Allow a social commentary. I do watch way too much sports. I pay too much attention to teams that don't even know I exist. But at the end of the day, it's bothering me more and more when you see an athlete use performance-enhancing drugs or you see a celebrity cheat on their spouse and it gets busted and they stand up in front of the news and they say things to all of us like this and my kids hear it. Well, that's not who I am. Liar. If you did it, that's exactly who you are. It's the same reason I can stand before you and say, if you think I'm a preacher because I have it figured out, you bought the lie. I am no different than anyone in this room. I am a simple man who found out that Jesus Christ could overcome my failures, and I was willing to admit I'm a failure. And by my shame, Christ took on my shame, my disgrace, and my punishment, and he brought me freedom. And so because I talk a lot, I get to preach. The difference between you and me right now, the only difference is I'm standing up here and you're sitting down. By the grace of Jesus Christ, you and I can exist as believers, amen? And it's through that hope that our obligation comes. And Paul says, I don't look good preaching the gospel, but I'm unashamed of it. I've been persecuted for preaching the gospel, but I'm unashamed of it. It has cost me much, but I'm unashamed of it. If the gospel hasn't cost you anything, you're probably not promoting the gospel. Because Jesus Christ is offensive to a world that says, I'll do it my way. So Paul says, I'm unashamed. Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, Jesus, endured the cross, despising the shame, and I sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Shame comes with the gospel, which is so beautiful that Paul would say, but I'm unashamed anyway. I needed the gospel, and it came for me. See, Paul goes on to say, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's quite interesting here. It is the power of God. It is God's work. Notice that it's not the power of you and I. It's not by trying our best and doing our best and hoping our best is enough. We have to abandon all of that. The gospel is the revelation of how God's power can do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's why we're unashamed of it. That's why it's my obligation to help those who don't understand the purpose of their life and they don't understand the community of power available to them. It is my obligation if I have any love in my soul to help someone who's hurting. Paul says, for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. There's no ethnicity involved, no color of the skin, no region, no dialect, no gender. None of those things matter. Jesus came that anyone who is ashamed of their sin and broken by the awkwardness of the lives they've chosen can fall at the mercy of God and by the righteousness of God 
there's power. It is the power of salvation. It's the word dunamis, a Greek word which means we've transliterated into dynamite. An explosive power that breaks all chains and frees all captives. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Michael and I were talking in the hallway, and the word can be translated from God or of God, but here's the principle behind it. It's not from you and me. It's the righteousness of God to a people that are not right. And the word righteousness means right standing. You know this if you're married. You understand what the concept of righteousness looks like. Have you ever walked in the house and said something like, hey, how are you, and got no response? You then search for righteousness, don't you? You, you begin to wonder, are we, are we good? Is, am I in right standing? What you want to know is, can I come in here and not get stabbed? This is all the questions you're asking deep in your soul. When you come to worship, many of us come in and we think, if I sit here and I listen, then we're, I'm right with God. No, 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 no. A relationship with God involves an interactivity that goes beyond this room. It's a righteousness of God offered to you in Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. This is a dangerous statement, but if you weren't with us this last summer, we began on the weekend of July 4th to preach a series of what is faith. I would highly encourage you to go back and review that series as we process this book. I know I'm asking you to listen to two sermons a week, and that's a lot. But if you haven't studied faith, I went back and read some of our notes. I'm excited about reviewing my mind or renewing my mind because it's a righteousness that comes from God by faith. So Paul says, I am not ashamed for Jesus is the power God used to destroy the things that kept us from being called, kept us from being loved, and kept us from being whole. So what is this all about? I'm unashamed of the gospel. I'm unashamed of the one who brought me the gospel. If you were with us in December, we went through a series called Captivity, or Christmas in Captivity, where Michael, Matt, and I all spoke a passage from Isaiah that talked about a God who promises to deliver. And what was the name of that one? See, Christmas may have ended, and your tree may be burnt already or packaged up, and the the bulbs are put away, and all the gifts you didn't want are taken back, and you may have all of that done, and you've wiped your house clean, and you're moving forward. But here's the good news. The baby that came a month ago is still here, and he's the only thing we have to hold ourselves to. He's our obligation. He's our opportunity. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which they must be saved. So I ask you this morning, what are you obligated to? Who are you obligated to? And are you ashamed of the gospel? It's the question of the morning. It's the principle behind everything we do. The truth of Jesus gives us purpose. It gives us a new community to grow in and be strengthened by. And it gives us an obligation that comes from love, not duty. And here's what I want you to know today. When we understand the righteousness of God available to us, we'll realize it's a righteousness available to the people we work with. It's a righteousness available to the people we live with. It's a righteousness available to the people we don't like so much. I'm unashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to all who believe. Let's pray.
Father, hear our hearts today as we repent and confess to you who we really are. I pray in these moments that you will open our hearts and minds and you will offer the mercy and grace. God, I pray for those in this room who don't know who you are, that your spirit would come upon them in such a way that they would have a conviction and a peace that doesn't make any sense, a peace about who you are, because you are the faithful one. You are the one we trust. And this morning, I pray that life will break out in this room, life from those who have once tasted of your goodness, but their hearts have become hard and tired and weary. And I pray that it will break out, that freedom will break out in the lives that are hungry and searching. And even those that arrived here today and had no reason why they came, but they're here and they're hearing of hope. God, I thank you that you're not a God like we feared, but that you're a God of love and mercy who's offering us hope. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.